0: This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio.
1: You're joining us on Radio radiotherapy. Um, we've got uh, Doolittle away today. He's our absentee. Again. Again, gallivanting around in the top end, I believe. Very <laughs> Oh,
0: he's not gallivanting, he's actually working. Allegedly. Well, yes. yes. <laughs>
1: Allegedly. <Literally>. Those... <laughs> delightful voices that you can hear mm-hmm. are owned by capri and Cyber Sue. good morning
0: Yay. good, good morning. morning
1: how you doing guys We're good thank you good 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 um we've got uh, a pretty packed show cybersue you've got some interesting news research wise coming up
0: we
2: do it's exciting news for um uh, peter mac this week with 80 million dollars of funding with a visit from scomo on monday so <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> what was the uh, vibe like with his visit
2: it was actually quite positive. Was it? Yeah. Good Plenty stuff. Plenty of
1: selfies. And... I guess when somebody's handing out money, yes, people absolutely. are smiling. Yeah. And Capri, what's on the cards?
0: Oh, I'm going to be talking about um, miscarriage and night shift and um, the new a new study that's been released and also the latest on vaping, oh, cigarettes really? and where we stand. And there's also a new study out suggesting that um, it doesn't help you quit. It actually might encourage you to start.
1: Good stuff, good stuff. I'm going to um, do part two of our of our series on self-help. Last week, we, last month, um, did a quickest of quickest overview of a little bit of history of the self-help um, industry. And this week, we're going to try and attempt to define it find what actually is uh, self-help and uh, what makes up the industry and talk a little bit about what maybe some of the foundational criticisms or critiques of it, maybe a better word. Um, And that'll set us up for more discussions later in the year around different genres of self-help that we'll take a look at. But um, we'll take a a little bit of Dr. Doctor and back with the news.
3: Dr. Doctor
1: Right. All right. So, in news, Capri, yep. what's caught your eye this week?
0: Oh, as I said, um, there's been a um, a study that's come out suggesting that um, miscarriage beyond eight weeks of gestation may be uh, contributed to by um, doing night shift. So miscarriage is incredibly common, as we know. It's usually uh, the most common time is between four and six weeks of pregnancy and one in four women, um, that's how common it is, will, um, will miscarry. And as I said, most of them happen early on in the gestation.
1: What? Sorry, just one in
0: four... Women will miscarry, what, pregnant women. Right. Throughout the whole course of a pregnancy, right. not within the first six to eight gotcha. weeks. Wow. Um, and uh, so most commonly before six weeks, and the causes are generally more than 50% of those considered to be due to congenital abnormalities, chromosomal abnormalities, um, things like infection, clotting disorders. There's a, there are some known causes for those miscarriages. But beyond eight weeks, um, it, researchers are now suggesting that women who work more than... Who work two or more night shifts the previous week are thirty two percent more likely to have a miscarriage after the eighth week of pregnancy compared to women who don't work night shift.
2: That's that's really interesting. My sister who's um, who is pregnant and she actually was um, given a doctor's certificate to not work night shift um, for that very reason. So, wow, interesting.
1: Um, that that. First, I'm still staggered at the rates that you mentioned at the Mm. start there. So one in four, can you just define that again? So one in four women, like we're not saying that any given population of women is miscarrying one in four pregnancies, are we?
0: That's the the statistic in general for all pregnant women. Right. So one in four pregnancies ends in miscarriage.
1: Mm. Mm. That's right. Wow. Mm. Yeah. I don't... That's Why don't you guys look as surprised as I am? Well, I've maybe not just tapped into it as much as you guys, I wonder, but that seems is, is so high.
0: Is it sometimes women who actually don't know that they're pregnant yet? Yes, that's included in that. A lot of women won't actually know oh, exactly right. Oh, okay, right, yeah. right, yeah. Right,
1: right, yeah. right. And then the stat for the, the night shift?
0: thirty uh, two percent
1: thirty two mm. right so it goes up twenty five to thirty two
0: yes yeah, so and so the reason being so this is really important because um, obviously of the distinction between the time of miscarriage um, and that now you know it, the hypothesis is that the, it's environmental exposure that's responsible rather than the other risk right, factors that we've yeah. been aware of. Um, the reason they 're suggesting is that um, it, it affects maternal levels of endogenous melatonin, which is the hormone that plays a role yeah. in um, it plays a role in optimizing the function of the placenta so that 's the connection there. Um, and exposure to light at night, along with the disruption of normal circadian sleep-wake cycles associated with night work, decreases melatonin release. So that's mm. the connection. So it's a pretty big implication for oh and isn't it? Yeah, really. Yeah. And awa- awards and
2: people's uh, right to leave or changes of shift work and so on. Yeah. And yeah. I wonder if it affects not only overnight workers, but people on late shifts like hospitality and...
0: And, and so on. Well, I don't see why it, w- it wouldn't. It depends on anyone working
1: those those crazy hours. Yeah. And, um, well, hopefully that might actually. I mean, that's statistically significant yes. enough for there to be actual policy change, right? Yeah. And um, somebody presenting so. with a with a, uh, a certificate. Mm.
0: Mm. So is that, wonder, some, sorry, is that Sorry, is that something your sister initiated?
2: Um, I think it was actually, it was probably something she was aware of. And um, also, there's a danger attached with ty- obviously the tiredness of working night shift. And I know myself having worked shift workers coming home after night shift and falling asleep at the wheel and such like. It's, there's a whole lot of risks associated with it that I think she recognised as well.
1: Awesome. Um, just to keep moving along with some news, the big news this week, I guess, was um, the reforms to health insurance. Uh, Did you guys catch this? No. No? (laughs) So as of uh, April 1st, uh, so from tomorrow, there's been some significant reforms to uh, the health insurance regime here in Australia. Um, This is largely in response to, you know, the the sorts of noise that we've been hearing for quite a while now about customer dissatisfaction Mm -hmm. with with health um, coverage, most particularly around um, people really coming to understand their insurance policy mm-hmm. each each uh, provider was using slightly different language to talk about the same thing and when people went to try and do a compare contrast with their their policies trying to work out what it does and doesn't cover a lot yeah. of lot of complexities and and people going to claim thinking they were covered and finding out mm-hmm. they're not so a whole range of uh, reforms have come in and and just like uh, the food industry did um a little while ago now, one of the aspects of this reform is they effectively colour-coding um, the different uh-huh. strata of, of insurance. So you, And there'll be industry um, conformity to understanding what a gold level, what a silver level is, what a bronze and what a basic level of cover is. And so you can then... Buy in, I guess, similar to a phone plan type situation. Yeah,
2: that's great. So, is that going to be out now, or is it going to take some time before it reaches the public?
1: So, some of the reforms have started being rolled out, but April first is is D date for for all of the providers to be getting in touch with their customers. Yeah, right. which reminds me, I haven't heard from mine. Mm. Have you guys heard? I have, yeah.
2: Australian Unity. I did have an email, I noticed, so I haven't read it. I'll confess.
1: Yeah, You haven't? Mm. <laughs> no. I, <laughs> I haven't seen I mean, it. But I think that's kind of the point, isn't it? It's like uh, when I get mail from from health insurance, it's, it's just gobbledygook for me. It's in the to-do me. basket. Yeah, yeah. I put it in the it's important yeah. but not urgent. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so just very quickly, um, so not only is there that um strattering of the um, policies, but there's um, increased discounts for young people to encourage the take-up there, 18 to 29. Whether we think that's a good thing or not, we can come back to that another time perhaps. Um, there's higher excesses in exchange for lower premiums, so that that had been a common complaint. Um, travel and accommodation benefits are now inclusive in um, policies uh, for those who travel longer distances mm. uh, for, for cover, uh, for a treatment. Um, so obviously, directing at rural and regional Australia, mm. um, and in, crucially improved access to mental health treatment by allowing people to upgrade their mm. cover um, without reserving a waiting period. Mm. Mm. So that's um, yes. that's, well, that's pretty that's all cool. Good
2: that's a good so thing. I mean, yeah. looking at mental health and regional equity of access to carers. Is only
1: good. so... Yep, yeah. um, and just finally, the insurers will no longer be able to offer benefits for some natural therapies. Yes, as part of extras policies. Mm. Yeah, um, and the private health insurance Obbudsbin has um, has new powers, um, which all sounds to the good if it yes. uh, if it pulls off. Yep. Yeah, it does. Cyber yeah. Sue, so, so did you? Um, Have a a news item that caught your eye during the week?
2: Oh, well, I guess the the visit by ScoMo is hard to avoid, but um, I don't know if we want to talk about that later. Yeah, let's come back
1: to that as a segment. Triple
2: R. Not for everyone. For anyone.
1: Welcome back, Uh, you're listening to Radio Therapy on Triple R. It's me, Panel Beater, with uh, Cyber Sue and Capri this morning. And Capri, you've got a guest for us.
0: Yes, we're very lucky to have Dr Nari Blow with us this morning. She's the Director of First Nations Health in the Medical School at the University of Melbourne. She's a doctor in paediatric training, doing research at the Murdoch Institute, as well as her um, Master's degree in Public Health. Um, at Melbourne Uni. So what Nari's bringing, what she's uh, doing at Melbourne Uni, one of the things she's doing is bringing um, First Nations health into the biomedical curriculum and trying to change the culture within a health system by taking current doctors and, and doctors of the future on a journey to cultural competency. Um, so that the First Nations people have equity within the health system to improve their health outcomes. Good morning, Nari. Thanks for being with us. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for having me. Would you like to start with...
3: Yeah, well, I... am um, Yeah, well, first of all, before I um, start, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to their ancestors, um, elders and those elders that are emerging, um, particularly because um, I've grown up off-country, so I'm not from here. Um, my mother's people are Yorta Yorta mob from around Shepparton area, and my father's people are Kondamuka people um, of the Nunakul Nation um, from up in Queensland, a place called Minjerabah, um also known as North Stratbrook Island. So it's really important for me to do that before we start. But um, yeah, what would you like to talk about today,
0: Ang? Well, you know, it's a big role you've, you've taken on um, and I'm sure very challenging at times. I know very challenging at times. Um, I'm just wondering, because it's, it's lots of firsts here, you're the first First Nation uh, um, director because this is a new role that has been developed as a result of, of you sort of initiating it. Is that correct? Yeah, I yeah. So <laughs> I'd like to know how that all came about because it's a huge thing you've taken on.
3: Yeah it actually it surprised me as well actually so um, I guess I did my medical training and actually finished my Master's of Public Health and my MD when I was at the university and then um, having that experience as a student um, and sort of seeing the content in there just felt like there wasn't enough um, to be covered when talking about First Nations people and felt like it was such a big issue not just because it affects my community and, and family but just because, you know, we, it's clear, you know, we see the Close the Gap reports, we know it's an issue in this country. Um, and so I'd been asked to do a few guest lectures here and there, um, which I did, and then um, took a bit of time off my paediatric training and got asked to sort of come on part-time and um, and somehow that lecturing turned, it in, turned into this director role, um, which was really about, you know, maybe a few lectures here and there isn't enough and maybe we need some curriculum development here and, and we need to kind of bring this in as a really key core part of the medical curriculum mm. um, and and I think it's it's challenging in a way because essentially I'm trying to bring in elements of a whole master's of public health into medicine which is obviously a different degree and 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 trying to just find the key messages of that and bring that into the biomedical course which is very much not set up for a holistic model of health, which is what you need when you're talking about First Nations health. and um, Although I think it's changing, I think the biomedical model is starting to broaden and, and look into that more.
1: So um, set us up for understanding um, where you're headed with this by letting us know what's happened up to now. So where is First Nations health fitted in curriculum, if at all, up to this point?
3: I think in most medical schools, it sort of sat under that banner of public health or global health which then people think global health is other countries, not here, um, and third world countries and not and not in Australia. So um, that's kind of, I think, where it's sat before and it's just been sort of, you know, dare I say, it's sort of ad hoc and, and lectures here and there. And then, um, yeah, so it hasn't really sat as a core part of, of learning. Um, so what I guess my goal is, is to integrate it more into the biomedicine that's being taught. So rather than just having a... You know, here's um, an experience of someone who's worked in an Aboriginal community. We've got, you know, we're looking specifically at the respiratory system. So let's look specifically at respiratory health for Indigenous people, mm. what that means, why there's a health disparity, what we can do about it, basically.
2: And how's the response been so far in your with your students?
3: I, we've had really positive response from the students. I think we've had a lot of those sort of revelations that we've never been taught this in primary school mm. and high school. and. Yeah. Um, you know i can 't believe we didn 't know these things, and because I think there 's this misconception that the reason that there 's health disparities is because there 's a lack of understanding about Aboriginal culture but it 's actually a lack of understanding about Australian history and the policies that have influenced first nations peoples and what that has subsequently led to in terms of health and and so bringing that to the light, you know a lot of students are like, "Wow, this is really important for us to know, and we really want
0: to know more so yeah, it's been really positive, which is good. So just on that, what, what are the policies? I mean, obviously it's a huge topic, but mm. how do you think history has um, created what we currently have and how are you going to change that? Mm. Well, I think there's sort of what
3: I found, talking to other doctors and, and talking to academics as well is this, and you know just the general public, there's this misconception that First Nations Health you know, has some kind of genetic link or, you know, there's a health disparity just because you're Aboriginal. And that's kind of a misconception because it becomes a risk factor when mm. you're mm. training.
0: and certainly was yeah. when we, you know, I've been doing this for a while and that was the vibe, basically. Yeah. Basically, yep. yeah. Which is not true. Um, so all the reasons
3: for the health disparities are around social determinants of health. Mm. So they're the things we're talking about, like um, levels of health, health literacy, education, employment, housing access to health. And when I say access, I'm not just talking about location, but I'm talking about culturally safe services, um, talking about services that, you know, where healthcare providers are not um, racist, which because mm. it happens in this mm. country, unfortunately. Um, and it turns um, First Nations people away from health services, meaning there's less access. So um, I, what was the question? <laughs> so,
0: so obviously, you know, historically we've created a... a um, an uninviting sort of health system is that a fair statement and or, or and um first nations people um don't access health services for a variety of reasons some of them being because they're distrusting of it or they're concerned about how they're going to be um managed um how will training new doctors change that for first nations people yeah well i want to make the point that
3: yes that's part of it that the services aren't set up for First Nation people to access them, but then also when First Nation people do access health, they're not getting best practice care, and mm-hmm. there's lots of evidence of that. Um, so it's not just on our side, I guess. It's on the healthcare care provider side, which is why I think it's so important that we're educating our future doctors um, to know about this history and acknowledge that history and know, um, I guess, think about their own implicit biases, um, and assumptions been treating Aboriginal patients, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients, and and so um, I think that is the way forward. Really, um, there needs to be an understanding of this stuff in order to then treat it. I mean, just blowing sense. up that makes misconception, um, mm. you know, is the first step. Mm.
2: So you've got this fabulous new directorate role. Is this happening across all universities, and is it happening in medicine, nursing, allied health, education, everywhere, mm. or is this a,
3: is this kind of like just the very beginning? Um, it is happening across, um, I think, all universities and also other health professionals. Um, but I guess how, how that's done is up to the university or up to the course. So it might not be called the same thing or run in the same way. So it's not, like um, yet mandatory? No. Well, yeah. it is um, in guidelines. So the AMC, which is the Australian Medical Council, says that, for example, says that all doctors have to have um, education in this area. So there has to be curriculum. Um, how that's done, though, sure. um, depends on the university. And then the same is happening across other um, other health professionals. So I know nursing just brought out some new guidelines saying that all nurses have to have um, cultural safety and understanding of that. Um, so,
0: you know, so it is coming in across Not all... Not
2: full time, right? <laughs> mm, yeah. Absolutely.
0: Mm. Um, I've been to a few seminars that Nari's given and I, every time I it makes me reflect on where I sit in in my understanding of this issue and how I move forward Um, and there's lots of terminologies that I wasn't clear on and um, the difference between equality and equity I think Mm. is a really important distinction and I wonder Nari if you can explain that to to us. Yeah Um, so this is really um, a concept that's been talked about
3: a lot especially in the public health space Um, it's I guess there's this idea particularly in the health setting that you know if we treat everyone the same um, then everyone's going to get the same care um, and you know why should we have to think specifically about First Nations patients for example because you know there's lots of patients that have the same issues um, so let's just treat everyone the same we'll all get the same care but um, that's I guess equality um, but equity is really moving past that and looking at well not everyone starts at the same point <coughs> um, and some people come in and they've had to go through multiple barriers to get to that point um, and actually probably need extra resources and services to make that healthcare care equitable, um, to make sure that they are getting the same healthcare as everyone else. Hmm. Um, so essentially the aim is that everyone gets the same, but in order to do that you've got to have equitable practices. So you do have to have um, resources like closing the gap, having subsidies around certain medications knowing that there are really expensive medications for chronic health disease and then knowing that First Nations people experience high burden of chronic health diseases, things like that. Mm. Um, So that's kind of the concepts we've been talking about a lot in the curriculum. Mm. Go on.
1: Yeah, so just on the curriculum point, is it um, being introduced into the various programs at all levels, so undergrad, postgrad and at each year within those?
3: Um, so the medical course I'm in is only a postgrad course. Right. Um, but there is an aim from the university to work as a community to try and embed this in other courses as well. Um, but just for my role, um, there's four years across the course, trying to get into all four years. I am <laughs> only one person, though. Yeah. Um, so um, I guess I'm focusing on the first year at the moment and then trying to slowly bring it into the second, third and fourth years as well.
1: And so, just to, just a quick follow up to that one. Um, and the, so, the so you're doing the teaching is that is that, or are you drawing on teaching resources from, for example, cultural studies or um, indigenous studies and so yeah. on and so forth.
3: So, I think originally I was doing a lot of the teaching because I have done lecturing in this course before, um, but I am trying to sort of take a step back and bring in you know, experts in their field, um, specialists, you know, that are, for example, when we're doing the cardiovascular block, bringing in a cardiologist to talk about it, um, who's had a lot of experience in cardiology, but then also is talking um, about the importance of First Nations health as well. Um, So that's kind of the aim is is to get, um, yeah, people from all different um, specialties come in and talk to it um, so that I can sort of um, look at the literature and the resources around how to frame the curriculum and, and I work a lot with um, Lime, the leaders in Indigenous medical education and talk to other um, medical schools um, around Australia and, mm. and Aotearoa and New Zealand um, to to make sure I'm kind of bringing you know, the best practice into the course.
2: Mm. Oh, that's really inspiring. So what is, um, what's, what's it going to look like for you, success? Mm. How do you mm. know you've made it?
3: Big <laughs> <Quick> question. <laughs> that is, it doesn't have to be next week. You know, just yeah, in your career. <laughs> I mean, is it a case of
1: uh, setting it up so that you don't? The job doesn't need to exist yeah. anymore. Yes, exactly.
3: <laughs> yep. mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Being able to walk away from the job, knowing that it's embedded in the curriculum, knowing that the doctors that are coming out of the courses are culturally competent, culturally safe. Um, you know they have an understanding of of First Nations health and and improving that in this country, and ultimately those doctors come out and they're advocates, um, and they're using their privilege to actually mm. change those health outcomes for our peoples. Um,
1: and I can't imagine that this is completely seamless. There must be some quarters where there's a little resistance. Mm-hmm. How would you characterize that?
3: Ah, there's always <laughs> resistance. <laughs> um, I think, you know, some of the content, you know, is challenging um, for people to hear about because, like I said, it's not been taught, you know, in our history, um, in our schooling system as much. Or some schools do it really well, but, you know, it's not across the board. So, um, yeah, I guess there's uh, it's confronting some of the content and so some people, you know, struggle with it at the beginning. Um, and And I suppose there are definitely... You know, people in the course that go, you know, this is not, this is not core. We need to teach this, or we need to teach that, um, and that's more important. Um, but luckily, we've got a commitment from the school that this is core content, um, and we are going to make sure that it's embedded. So,
0: I think that's what I love about what you're doing Nari is that you know it's a bit like racism we don't grow up as children being racist it's it's the culture you're within and the experiences you have and the role models etc what what you're doing is trying to get the doctors the doctors of the future get in there before they are influenced Mm -hmm. by exactly the rest of us who are trying to catch up and, and get a, become culturally aware and proficient. Mm. Um, but we're not the ones who, sh- who can do it because we're still, as I say, trying to catch up. Yeah. So I think it's great that the uni has recognised this being a really important thing to do at this level. Yeah. And I can only see that it's a positive thing and I think it's already been a positive thing. I don't think... Uh, I think you've already, um, you know brought a lot to, to the MD1 course. So, oh, you know, you. I think it's great. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of power in this generation coming up.
3: You know, there's a lot of advocacy, um, people who really want to make a change and, and it's interesting because they are going into a system that's it has been run a certain way for a very long time and it's quite hard to work within that system. Um, and also there's a hierarchy when it comes to, to medicine and, and so, um, you know, having you know these um new graduates coming in with these skills um there's a potential that they can hopefully change the system and um change the views of the team around them and and work with the team Mm. to actually without
0: even realizing because it'll be a no-brainer it's like well why why aren't we you know why is that not the case yeah
1: Yeah, so do what are enrollments like for indigenous students in these programs are we seeing positive shifts in that direction
3: well, I don't have the statistics on me, um, but the Australian Indigenous Doctors' Association is doing some great work um, in the space of just supporting Indigenous doctors around the country um, and also um, seeing rates of um, Indigenous medical students really rise. Um, even within our university, we're seeing more enrolments in the last um, year, couple of years. So, um, yeah, it's definitely... Um, yeah, we're definitely seeing more, um, but you know the fact is we are 3.3% of the population, and and we as First Nation doctors can't do all the work in this space, sure. and so we need really strong allies um, that work with us um, on improving First Nation health. Yeah.
0: OK, well, thanks, Nari, for coming in and sharing some of that and letting us all know what's going on at Melbourne Uni um, and what great work you're doing. And um, I feel really hopeful and optimistic about um, First Nations health mm. and what the doctors of the future are going to be trying to, you know, or how they're going to be helping um, your people. that's so yes, great. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah, great, thanks.
2: Thanks for coming and lucky for them to have you too. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
3: thank you. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three RR in Melbourne, Australia.
1: Uh, you're on uh, RR. Uh listen to Radio Therapy with myself, panel Beta, Capri and uh, Cyber Sue. Cyber Sue, tell us about Skomo's visit to the Peter Mac.
2: So uh, Monday on the news, we uh, many, any of us watching the news saw Scott Morrison had been visiting Peter Mack with some interesting news that he, um, the government had invested $80 million worth of uh, funding, which was to launch a um, new national cancer treatment centre. Now, the amazing thing about this is it's to um, provide access to Australians to some life-changing car T-cell treatment that previously was only being offered overseas. Hugely expensive treatment, but having these remarkable um, impacts on people who've undergone trials and treatment to date. Um, It's essentially um, been proving to work for some blood cancers, and there's trials underway to treat um, some solid cancers as well. Um, It's What's fascinating about it is revolu- potentially revolutionising the way that some cancer can be treated by using the immune system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So it's most advanced with things like uh, leukaemia. Is, it that, is seems that
2: right? To, it seems to be the case. Yes. And um, the, um, f- from from what I can gather is that the uh, what they do is they take out the uh, they take a blood some blood from the patient. They separate the T cells, and T cells are part of the immune. Um, reaction, basically T-cells normally can fight viruses Mm -hmm. but they have trouble recognising cancer cells Mm -hmm. because the cancer cell is essentially the person's own cell multiplying. So they take the T-cells out, they do some magic to it, Mm -hmm. put it back in and then the T-cell, these new car T-cells can attack and recognise the cancer. And amazingly, once they're in the body, they actually multiply massively until the cancer has all gone Mm -hmm. and then they stay in the body so if the cancer comes back, it can then Um, It's like futuristic,
0: you know, it's amazing. Um, That's a a huge advance in in cancer therapy from what I can...
2: Oh, I mean, it totally is. I mean, when you think about people going through chemo and protracted long long, uh, period of um, very difficult treatment, this is a, um, from what I can see, a relatively short treatment that, yes, the patient can get very sick, Mm. but then it's um, kind of incredible
0: results mm. which is the same for marrow transplant they can often you know get very unwell and succumb so uh, as far as that goes i don't think it's any we're not trading off anything there but um it's you mentioned the expense yes so per treatment
2: yes yeah, so um studies from this, apparently in the states it's something like half a million u.s dollars has been an estimated cost of one of these treatments um But compared to the impact, it's considered to be worth it. At the moment, the Australian government is working out how they are going to actually pay for this in Australia, but they have committed, and hence why they're developing the infrastructure at Peter
0: Mac to um, enable this treatment to be delivered. I must say I was a little bit... um not sceptical, but uh, I don't know if you read in the Age a week ago they, they were talking about the sexy cancers, you know, leukaemia being one of them, um, because um, leukaemia is not one of the, the most common cancers, um, but it does seem to siphon a fair bit of um, government funding and also um, public chari- um, charitable funds as well. So, so I was kind of thinking, oh, this sounds like a lot of money being put into mm-hmm. one of them perhaps not most um, not that you want to you want to compare no, yeah. them at all, and and if you're affected by any one of them, it, you know, obviously devastating. Yeah. But then what I read was that this research and this um, uh, this way of, of dealing with cancer can, can may be useful with other cancers, so lymphomas, solid malignancy. So I thought, OK, that, that sounds
2: That's better. right. It's kind of like the beginning, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? And yeah. And, I mean, you are right, there are some cancers like... Um, uh, breast cancer, prostate, and leukemia, where there is a lot more kind of investment and uh, uh, funding for that, and rare ca- there's there is many many rare cancers, and uh, as a as a group put together, rare cancers make up a good portion of cancer, but they don't receive the research or the clinical trials mm. to to mm. treat them.
1: So what does $80 million get us? Um, I'm sure that must involve some kind of equipment. It must also yeah. be recruitment of experts. That's
2: yeah. right. That's right. So hema- we've got some, obviously, some incredible uh, incredible team of, uh, they, they, Peter, Macca, a team of haematologists and researchers, scientists, nurses, and um, also what they call clean rooms, which is where they actually um, extract and m-
3: manipulate these T cells. Um, yes, yeah, so it's not cheap. Oh, I was just going to say earlier that um, when you're talking about that sexy cancer idea, there's a pretty um, one of the most common cancers is bowel cancer, mm. and that doesn't often get talked about because no one wants to talk about the bowels. Mm. Um, but that's a really good point about you know the fact that actually this um, technology can be used in other cancers and hopefully um, across multiple.
0: Mm. Lungs, the other one, because it's perceived that you've brought that upon yourself. You know, mm. you've been a smoker when actually it's not a lot of cancer, the lung case. cancer, is yeah not the case. But yeah. Look, yeah. it's a great, it's a wonderful, um, yeah, opportunity. I did
2: have a look online and you can uh, Google it, um, Googling CAR-T and uh, you c- there's there's an email where you can find out um, whether you, uh, eleg- you know, speak to a haematologist or oncologist and find out whether you could be potentially um, uh-huh. suitable to look into a trial or treatment. So it's, yeah, it's it's becoming here now. Mm. Yeah, it's
1: great. When, when will the first treatments begin, do you know?
2: So, um, no, I don't know the answer to that, but uh, my understanding is that some people are receiving treatment now.
1: Already? Mm. Good news, Mm. good news. Mm. Three Triple R. Welcome back to um, Radiotherapy with myself, panel Beto, with Dr Capri and uh, Cyber Sue, and we're still delighted to have our guest hanging around with us, um, Nari Blow from the University of Melbourne um so for today we're into part two of uh, or part one and a half we were really really quick last week when we were talking about the um, the history of uh, self-help we might pick up on a little bit of that today but uh, part two is trying to get our head around a definition of um, of what self-help is um, and Anticipating that something more than just uh, the label that's on a few of the bookshelves in your local bookstore, um, and then taking a look at what the uh, self-help industry actually is, um, before wrapping up with a a little bit of a look at perhaps a few um, areas of critique of of the industry itself. So, with um, um with self-help as a as a concept. Um, the way that I start to think about it, you know, given where I sit academically and so on, is is that it's the commodification of health, you know, the mental health in in particular, um, and there's a cultivation of a market, um, you know, being living in a consumer society. So, we, so self help I immediately associate with um, with those books that uh, line the shelves of of readings or wherever the bookshop is that you might find it, and certainly online. Um, and yet, for some people, they would deal with self-help simply by behaviours and lifestyles. So self-help might be for some people exercising, mm. uh, might be for some people listening to music, might be reading fiction and not necessarily a, a how-to book. So we certainly can recognise that self-help um, is ambiguous uh, as a term. No no um, less uh, a, um, a social critic, that, critic than George Carlin. He um, He kind of took issue with this term self-help. He said, if you're looking for self-help, why would you look for help from someone else? That's not self-help, mm, yeah. that's help. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and so it, you can pause and reflect on, on you know, to what extent um, self-help really is in, fact, is in fact that. And then that would then uh, encourage us to think about, well, if we're looking for help from others, who's legitimate um, and who is um, appropriate for us to, um, to get that help from? So we could think of it philosophically. We could think of it as um, simply knowing thyself, the um, you know Aristotle's um, edict. Um, but there might be some clues about what self-help is by looking at a few of the synonyms and a few of the euphemisms for it. So I was googling away, as you do, um, and I tell you what, self-help's not. If you're if you if you're reading heaps and heaps of self-help stuff, it can actually get to you as you know as I was doing in preparation for this. Um, So obviously, self-help as one phrase, self-improvement, personal development, self-care, pop-psych, and psychobabble is probably Um, the most pejorative of (laughs) Have You guys got others? No, I I think covers them. Yeah. And there seems to be a difference uh, in the way that this self-help is defined depending on where the the person undertaking some self-help situates themselves. So there's a distinction between uh, a belief that there's something wrong with us... Compared to a self-help, where you're looking for improvement, improvement. Mm. and um, and, I, and I as I was going through all the all the self-help um, genres, um, seeing that, the, that there's a really important point of demarcation uh, in that. So, people who are seeing themselves as flawed or um, unwell, even in some cases, and certainly that would apply to self-help related to mental health. Um, there's a distinction between that kind of self-help and that where somebody is um, doing self-improvement, you know, and it might be something physical, but it might also be like uh, changing habits or...
0: Yeah, or a new skill.
1: A new skill or something of that nature, yeah. Um, There's a a, a wonderful uh, writer, uh, Jenna Wortham, who... um, Who's been a little insightful with this, and and she treats it a little more seriously, and perhaps adds a dimension of politics to it. And she um, she has said um, uh, she she frames in her writing her writing she frames pop culture in ways that um, highlight a, a very particular significance. In one of her essays um, titled "Body Scrubs, uh, Feather Robes." And other failed experiments in self-care, um, she reflects on um, an Audrey Lord, uh, who is a, a feminist civil rights um, uh, advocate. Uh, a quote of hers: "That mantra of self-care enthusiasts on the internet: caring for myself is not self-indulgence; it is self-preservation, and that is an act of political warfare." So at that extreme of an understanding of what self help uh, and self care is, um, it becomes a political act to, to look after yourself and to advocate for yourself. And um, that um, our conversation earlier on Indigenous health probably fits into that quite neatly. Um, And then to try and find the other extreme, is self-help and self-care simply the pampering herself? And I think that's what's captured in the title of that article, the um, body scrubs, uh, feather robes and so on, is simply, as I did last night, ordering a pizza, self-help, (laughs) self-care and just relaxing. Um,
0: I I I feel like, um, you know, I'm just trying to reflect on the times I might have... um, Indulged in some self-help and self-care, and it's usually um, because I feel like I'm, yeah, I need I need a little bit of um, nurturing or a little bit of knowledge, Um, and I I don't know whether that is um, valid or not valid, but it seems to be. Most people would go, as you say, go for something like that because they need enrichment in some part of their life, Um, and so. Uh, I don't know whether we need definitions, it's a very individual thing I think why why you mm. access anything like that
2: And um, I mean I think we're in a, such a society right now where we're so hectic and busy all the time and we're scheduling in and we schedule in yoga okay, I'll schedule in my self help and I'll schedule in my relaxation but I tend to think that it's actually sometimes about just stopping and just even doing nothing or being non-productive and just being and having a piece of pizza because I feel like just <laughs> relaxing. <laughs>
1: yeah, the, well, that's it because there's... And we'll talk about this in coming, um, uh, coming months. Um, there's a whole genre around productivity and how to organize your life and how to make life more meaningful by being productive and then there's the counter genre to that which is i guess loosely called the mindfulness mm. movement mm. and so there's a whole um uh, a whole literature on on do, doing exactly what you just said which is just slowing down not measuring your life success based on how productive you are but simply how um, calm and controlled and in touch with yourself that you are
0: I mean, given we've got Nari here, I'm interested in what self-help looks like in the in First Nations people because I'm, you know, I, I assume they don't go and buy a self-help book. Well, some probably do. I, I shouldn't assume anything, yeah. but but I'm sure there's a lot of self-care um, that's part of your culture as well.
3: Yeah. Well, I think um, you can never talk about First Nations people as a homogenous group. No. We're always going to have different cultural um upbringings and different practices um but there is lots of terms um that are um, different in different languages but probably the most common one that we, you've heard about is um one called didiri which is a little bit like mindfulness it's that idea that you are um i guess being engaged with yourself and your environment and being aware of what's going on around you and just taking a moment to um, reflect on that hmm. um and yeah and appreciating what you have and and in your life, and because I think you know, we don't do that a lot in general, we're just so busy that we forget to, you know, love ourselves and, um, yeah, and actually take that moment, um, to step back and think about what's going on around us. So, mm. yeah, very like similar concepts, and, um, some would say even some of the science from mindfulness comes from those practices, mm. um, that have been around for thousands of years.
1: Mm. The, and that's sort of taking thinking in the direction of the philosophical and and what is in fact the self. Is the self your mind or is the self your body? And um, thinking about what self-help is in relation to that um, takes you in particular directions as well, which... In turn, makes me wonder whether we would define philosophy, or certainly the, um, you know, the, the ancient Greek type philosophy that orientates around how to live a good life. Um, whether that is self help, we're certainly seeing a rise of um, stoicism as a as a, as a mo- or practically a movement in some quarters, especially in the in the bro self help um, realm, um, but then also religion when people are turning to religion, um, if we're thinking of it as self-care and, and looking for something beyond ourselves, um, is our, are those who engage with religion engaging with self-help uh, in other terms, in other words. No, no,
2: a, you're going. No, go no, you're on. looking like a guideline, some guidelines for living our lives and some guidance, I
0: guess. Mm, when you feel a bit out of control because you feel like, I can't do this, I need help with that.
1: That's right. I mean, religion or the various religions, certainly um, all the big ones, um, they're full of, you know, what I would call rules. <laughs> um, but I guess to the religious, they're guidelines mm. um, and they're they're answering questions about how to... Uh, live your life, and the um, biggest selling book of last year um, was Jordan Peterson's Twelve Rules for Life, and and effectively, it's um, and and we won't go into a critique of Jordan Peterson just now, but um, but essentially, I think the clues in the title, people feel like the question they have for themselves and their place in the world is just tell me what i need to do to get through this um and if you can simplify it down to 12 rules that'd be really great it's
0: really comforting to think i only need to do 12 things and everything's going to work out i mean wouldn't that be just ideal Um, Nadi, I'm really interested to know a bit more about this with jury that you're talking
3: about. I'm sorry, I might not have said that quite right. Yeah, Diri is, is practice, yeah. Um, but I was actually just going to say, make a point about that, how funny it is that people want to look for 12 steps, so they want something really quick and um, easy mm. when actually the process in itself should be one that's self-reflective and, and maybe a bit more of a long journey. Mm. So kind of ironic. Um, yeah, so I, I think the process I guess is um, it can be different for different cultures but it's it's really actually linking in with spirituality actually um, and it's interesting because Aboriginal spirituality is um, not technically considered a religion so we have to call it a spirituality but obviously the same sort of thing around guidelines and, um, and connecting I guess with um, whatever you would classify as yourself and, and I guess um, yeah the environment, the spirituality, the land, all those things so mm. yeah. Mm.
1: Um, and in the last uh, minute or so we, we have with us, then maybe thinking about a distinction between, um, this thing we're calling self-help, self-care, um, and selfishness and self-centeredness mm-hmm. and, um, how we might be able to identify a distinction distinction there so navel
0: gazing a little
1: bit so well, navel gazing i mean with my political hat on you know the the iron randy fans the you know the um uh sort of rational self-interest point of view of the world where you you are morally bound to look after yourself um and everything um falls into place after that mm. um which is, you know, very contentious idea and it sort of uh, has some significant political influence depending on how you take that. Um, but selfishness, uh, if it's understood as, you know, making yourself the most important thing and expecting everything around you to recognise that, um, how people then... Um, talk about the way that they're giving themselves self-care or self-help um, mm. becomes interesting.
0: I guess I struggle a bit with the idea of being the most important thing rather than the best you can be. Yeah, you know, I think that's an important distinction because um, if you're the most important thing, I don't know that you can be valuable to yeah. other people, whereas if you're the best you can be, then you can then